Well, hello. My name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. I have a follow-up on the Karina Homer story coming. I've reached out to the Boston Police Department and the Attorney General's office, and I have lots of questions about the status of her case and what we may be able to do going forward. I have a plan. I'll let you know how it goes. Thank you for donating to the Coffee Fund. Mark with a C, Brooke, David, Sandy, Joanne. There's more. Thanks to those of you who bought merch this week, including Gazella and Sandrine. And as I was about to look at the Buy Me a Coffee page, it crashed. There are more of you, but your support of the show is magnificent. Please keep at it. I set a new goal for the fund, and I have some special things in the works for August and going forward with the show that you all can be a part of if you would like to. Keep your eyes on crimeofthetruestkind.com. I'm prepping some new merch items that I hope to launch come August. I have something coming up to celebrate the first year of the show. It was born, the show was born this week, last summer, July 14th, is the day I made the decision that I was going to start this podcast. I had no idea that it would become what it has become up until right now in less than a year's time. And it has exceeded any of the dreams that I had set forth at that point. I got to be honest with you. I had some ideas, but I really didn't know where I was going to go with it. And it's been great. Well, I didn't launch the first episode until October 1st. The trailer did drop in early August, so we can celebrate. We're allowed. Follow, subscribe, rate, review, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Stitcher, and Audible. And I keep hearing on CastBox, but... I went on CastBox and I couldn't find where you can do reviews. So I don't know if that's true. Thanks to Boots11 for their review on Audible. I will read it. Ready? I am a born and raised Bostonian. I love a good local tale. Ms. Wood is a Boston rock radio legend. She is? What? She checks all the boxes. She cares and has true empathy for the victims, their families, and the people these tragic stories affect. Her research is thorough. And she really knows how to tell a story and keep the listener immersed in the facts. The respect and thoughtfulness Angel shows is evident. And on top of that, she has a killer, see what I did there, voice. Very Katie Seagal-like. Chef's kiss. Angel is a class act and you'll be begging for more. I am so new to this game. Every single thing counts. Thank you so much for that thoughtful review. Boots 11. I humbly accept your review. Thank you. Okay, please follow the show online at Crime of the Truest Kind on Facebook and Instagram, at Truest Kind on Twitter and TikTok, and buy me a coffee. Please support the show. You can give to the coffee fund. You are the wind beneath these wings, I'll tell you. Everything at crimeofthetruestkind.com. Oh, and it's also linked to ihearttruecrime.com. I am still so stoked that I got that URL. I tell these tales of New England, our crusty people. We're the only ones in on the joke. We soldier through the dark winters and come out the other side, reborn, ready to face what's next. 
Few New England stories have affected a city the way the cold storage and warehouse fire did. And that is why I want to tell you the story of the Worcester Six in Worcester, Massachusetts. Let's talk about Worcester. Spelled Worcester. But don't say that. You will be made fun of mercilessly. Worcester and Worcester. Both acceptable. The Woo. Wormtown. And how did Worcester get to be called Wormtown? Well, reportedly by a local DJ, who was credited with coining the term in the late 1970s during punk rock's heyday. As local legend goes, and as written by the Worcester Telegram, former WICN and WCUW disc jockey Leonard B. Saarinen, a.k.a. L.B. Worm, was writing a fanzine about the local music scene and wanted a hooky phrase. It was a clever fuck-off to Beantown as well, which is what some people call Boston. So, on May 1st, 1978, the inaugural issue of Wormtown Punk Punk Press was released. And with that, the cheeky moniker was born. It has since been used and abused. On record titles, Wormtown 78, Exile in Wormtown. The radio show, Radio Free Wormtown. Wormtown Review, Wormfest, Wormtown Underground. There is the Wormtown Brewery. Now, no disrespect from me. That, I believe, the Wormtown Punk Punk blog alludes to in its post-decrying Wormtown is not beer shirts. They are now available on the blog where you can... Show your support for the OG Wormtown with the new hashtag Wormtown is not a beer t-shirt. All linked in the show notes for the interested. Worcester is the second largest city in Massachusetts after Boston with an estimated population of about 184 and a half thousand people. Due to its location near the geographic center of Massachusetts, Worcester is known as the heart of the Commonwealth. A heart is the official symbol of the city. I think that's very sweet. Worcester is home to eight colleges and universities that bring in an additional 35,000 students to the region. Assumption University, Clark, Holy Cross, Mass College of Pharmacy, Quinsigamond, University of Mass Medical School, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and Worcester State University. Many notables from Worcester, not all of whom I will include. Harvey Ball, he created the famous smiley face logo, Mike Probiglia, the comic, from Worcester, well, really, Shrewsbury, or Shrewsbury, as most people call it. Abby Hoffman, civil rights leader, and who really wrote Fuck the System. Dennis Leary, comedian, actor, founder of Leary Firefighters Foundation. Oh, here's an old favorite. I'm on Jordan Knight of New Kids on the Block was born in Worcester. Rapper Joyner Lucas is from Worcester, and he titled one of his mixtapes his phone number, 508-507-2209. I didn't try to call it. Doug Stanhope, the comic, is from Worcester. Eric Persullivan, Dewey, on Malcolm in the Middle, born in Worcester. Alicia Witt, actress and musician, from Worcester. Jeffrey Sakarian, you've seen him on Chopped on the Food Network. He was Burncoat High School class of 1977 and then went to Worcester State. John Warren Giles Jr., a.k.a. Jay Giles, went to Worcester Polytech. 
guitarist Duke Levine, comes from Worcester. Andy Ross, guitarist for the rock band OK Go. OK, you don't know? OK, that's all right. Now, Worcester has its own identity as a music town, Wormtown. Bands like Four Year Strong, The Hotel Year, Seamless, The Current Society, Childhood, who won the Rock and Roll Rumble in 1986, you're right, Backwards Dancer, Michael Caine and the Morning Afters, Dearbone Sapling, Eyewitness, Bane got their start there. They played recently in honor of Brendan Stu McGuire, who just passed away. That is a very short list of a very long list of great bands that come to us from Worcester. Places to see music, the beloved Worcester Centrum. That was the place to see shows. I remember seeing a boatload of shows there. I saw my first ever show there. Any guesses who? I found a concert archive site that listed Centrum shows, but it is suspect seeing as it lists Van Halen 5150 as August 11th, 1963. Now, I wasn't at that show, but I did see Van Halen at the Centrum. Alice in Chains opened. I'm going with about 1991. Thanks to the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, I found a story that lists shows beginning on September 1st, 1982. Ten-year naming rights were purchased in 2004 by the Digital Federal Credit Union, DCU, and went into effect on January 2005. Now, DCU's naming rights were extended through 2025, so it remains the DCU Center until we can convince someone to call it the Centrum again. I guess we're going to have to call up those vitamin people. I remember seeing a show at the Worcester Auditorium. And for some reason, I remember it being called the New Odd. It was Skid Row and Pantera. And Pantera opened. There's the Palladium. Ralph's Rock Diner, the Raven. Sir Morgan's Cove, the Cove, the Lucky Dog. The Hotel Vernon, Vincent's. The former home of Sir Morgan's Cove on Green Street was recently sold for $900,000, along with its very rich rock and roll history. Oh, Sir Morgan's holds a very juicy piece of that. Once upon a time, when the Rolling Stones were rehearsing at Longview Farm in North Brookfield, it was for the American leg of the Tattoo U Tour, and they wanted to play a live show. September 14th, 1981, the show was advertised as The Cockroaches and was met with throngs of fans who'd gotten wind of a Stones warm-up show in crowded Green Street outside the club. Around 10,000 people had reportedly showed up outside the small Worcester club with a capacity of not even 300. Now the site, I hear, will become a bowling alley and a restaurant. Now, of course, I asked my friend, author, and longtime radio DJ Carter Allen about that show, And unfortunately, he was not there. I was so hoping he was, because I expected him to have been. But he did catch them at JFK Stadium on that tour. Polar Seltzer is a Worcester brand. The delicious fizzy water was born in the early 1880s, when Dennis Crowley began to craft what he considered to be the world's best-tasting bubble recipe for family and friends. Four generations later, Polar Seltzer remains owned and operated by Dennis Crowley's family in Worcester, Massachusetts. And still delicious. Now Worcester has been home to many cinematic events. John Hamm currently shooting the Fletch movie reboot there right now, and I don't know that we needed one, but I will definitely stop and look at John Hamm. There's a new season of Dexter on the way, shot in and around Worcester recently. Oh, and Kevin can fuck himself. The new show on AMC starring Annie Murphy... Alexis from Schitt's Creek. It's a dark comedy set in Worcester. 
It is loaded with local references, and one of the characters, Patty, is seen wearing a Ralph's Rock Diner t-shirt in one of the scenes. I spotted that right away. The show's really about a woman struggling with her dead-end job and her asshole husband. Nothing has impacted the city of Worcester more in the last 20 years than the Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse fire. It showed what the city and its people were made of. Early December is tough on the residents and the many firefighters who work in the city of Worcester. The events of Friday, December 3rd, 1999 will not and should not ever be forgotten. And they will make sure of that. A fire broke out at the abandoned Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse at 266 Franklin Street. A massive structure. And the fire predates the catastrophic events of September 11th, a day we will soon mark the 20th anniversary of. I tend to believe that when the carnage of September 11th, 2001 was realized, the first people outside of FDNY who wanted to go help search were the Worcester Fire Department in honor of the Worcester Six. Thank you to the Leary Firefighters Foundation. There was a documentary short honoring the Worcester Six on the 20th anniversary of the fire, December 3rd, 2019. Released in five parts, then the sixth and final full video, all of which I watched several times, and I defy you not to shed a tear. I decided to use some of that audio here because they are the words of some of those who were directly involved in the events of this day. We always get out of the building. We always made our way out all the time. You know, it wasn't, it didn't seem like it would ever happen to us. On December 3rd, I, re I recall um, we got called in a normal three alarm fire, so it was no big deal. The cold storage building was built in the early 1900s. It was built with very thick walls, 36 inch walls, and it had multiple layers of insulation. The fire started by a homeless couple using a small little campfire for heat. It compounded because they left without telling anybody and just ran off, and we thought people were in the building. Engine one, you're reporting heavy smoke showing in 1816. First alarm came in. They had smoke showing. They went in and did some investigation. And we were coming down Grafton Street, and we're right at the rotary. There was a big plume of white smoke, which is always good because most building fires, it's black. The rescue company initiated their search of the building. Um, Jerry and Paul went into the roof and just thought, no big deal. They'll just keep on walking down until they find the fire or find their way out. Came around the corner right up the street here on Franklin Street, and I was like, what the hell happened? Everything had gone black. Everything was now black smoke, and you hear guys starting to get a little frantic on the radio. You know, I knew that something changed for the worse. This quickly rose to something that Worcester was never accustomed to. We're running to the front of the building, and this was just about the time that the fourth alarm was being sounded. I was home at the time and got a phone call that there were two people missing. By the time I got to my station to get my gear, there was now six. The 
coal storage fire was so unique because of how the building was cut up. It was just a uh, cut up building with stairwells that went to different floors and stopped. Just think of yourself in a giant room. If you can't see anything and you get in that room, how do you know how you're going to get out? You walked in the first floor and it was clear as day. You got to the top of the stairs on the second floor, you couldn't see a thing. It was lights out. You can't see your hand in front of your face. At that point, guys were saying, you know, we're lost, and it was, it was surreal. Apparently, they couldn't find their way back to the stairwell to the roof. They couldn't find their way to the stairwell to the ground floor. Eventually, they called a mayday, and um, a lot of crews went in looking for them. All the guys came in. I mean, retirees came in to help. Everybody came in to do what they could do. It was a tornado of fire and that he saw. It was just a tornado of fire. It was just out of control. You hear the term white hot fire. This was actually white fire, which they estimated between two and 3,000 degrees. These guys were going to do everything they could to get their brothers out. We wanted to go look for these guys, but that was the worst thing we could have done. Finally, about an hour and 45 minutes into the fire, Chief McNamee had the understanding that if they continued, they were going to lose more than six, many more. And he was like, that's it, everybody out. It was devastating. I, I still really didn't sink in and that they weren't going to come out. So that's the thing that always stuck out in my mind, just sitting outside right here, the fire was right here. And we were on that street right there looking at it, thinking, all right, they're going to be in the back. They're going to open up a side doorway or something. It just never happened. All of the voices that you hear are members of the Worcester Fire Department past and present. Some have retired. Others have moved on to other positions. I will include everyone with the links in the show notes at crimeofthetruestkind.com. So, what happened that day in December 1999 that took the lives of six firefighters from Worcester, Massachusetts? Two homeless people were camped inside the empty building. It was a shelter during the very cold early days of December in Massachusetts, where temperatures often fall below zero. The man and the woman had an altercation. They knocked over a candle. The fire started, and they ran. Now I know what you're thinking. What the fuck? They didn't report it. Despite the fact that there were reports that they had a cell phone, they left the building. Obviously because they didn't want to get found out squatting inside an abandoned building. I will get back to that. The fire started on the second story and burned undetected for 30 to 90 minutes. An off-duty police officer first called it in at 6.13 p.m. after seeing gray-white smoke coming off the roof of the building. It was around this time that an off-duty firefighter from the neighboring town of Auburn was driving past the warehouse on I-290 and radioed in to report smoke coming from the roof, and reportedly told the fire chief, this is going to be a multiple alarm fire. They were right. The five-alarm fire at the Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse building at 266 Franklin Street 
began sometime after 4 p.m. and quickly escalated into a multi-alarm blaze. As a result of the fire burning unnoticed for a good amount of time, the fire spread through the building. The owner of a neighboring business told a police officer at the scene that a homeless couple had been squatting in the building and firefighters did what they were trained to do. They went in to rescue people they thought were trapped inside a burning building. The initial response was Worcester Fire Department engines 1, 6, 12, and 13, ladders 1 and 5, rescue 1, and car 3. Upon arrival at 6.16 p.m., Engine 1's officer reported heavy smoke coming from the roof. Companies entered and started searching for the fire. At 6.19, car 3 arrived and ordered a second alarm, bringing two more engines and one more ladder. Crews in the building discovered heavy fire in the elevator shaft and called for lines to be deployed. A report came in. Two homeless individuals were inside. Rescue One split into two-person teams and started a search of the building. Conditions deteriorated. Visibility dropped to zero. One of the two-person teams became disoriented on an upper floor. Other crews started searching for them. The missing team called command. They were running low on air and needed immediate assistance. As I am reading through the details of what happens in the Worcester Warehouse fire, I'm reminded of how quickly the fire spread through the station nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island. And though the stories are very different, there are a few heartbreaking parallels for me in the story. More than 25 firefighters charged into the burning warehouse on that Friday night. District Fire Chief Michael McNamee ordered them out of the building when he judged the conditions too dangerous. Missing at a headcount after he had given his orders were two members of Rescue Company No. 1, 41-year-old Paul Brotherton of Auburn and 38-year-old Jeremiah Jerry Lucy of Luster. Of the search parties that went in after them, four men did not make it out. Lieutenant Thomas Spencer, 42, of Worcester. Timothy Jackson, 51, of Hopedale. This is hard to read, you guys. James Lyons, 34, of Worcester. And Joseph McGurk, 38, also of Leicester. The family members of all six firefighters were notified and asked to gather at St. Stephen's School in Worcester to await word on the fates of their loved ones. The names of the men were released the following day, all young men, the oldest among them only 51. The Worcester Warehouse Fire of 1999 left 15 fatherless children. The youngest of the men was James F. Lyons III. He went by Jay. He loved to listen to fires on the police scanner and would beg his dad to take him to the scene. His father, James Jr., recalled favorite memories telling of how Jay would tug on his hand when he heard the fire alarm and ask his dad to take him to the fire. Sometimes he would say, Jay, it's cold out and it's snowing, but he would take him to the fire. Jay Lyons graduated first in his fire academy class in 1987, and he had scored well on the test to become a lieutenant. The oldest of the men, and the one whose body was recovered from the building first, was Tim Jackson. 51 years old, a 27-year veteran of the Worcester Fire Department, who memorialized his service in the Army as a Vietnam veteran with a large screaming eagle tattoo on his shoulder. 
Tim received many accommodations, including a Purple Heart. A member of the Red Knights Motorcycle Club, he frequently rode his Harley to Washington, D.C. for Vietnam veteran rallies. A friend described Tim as a gentle giant with a face like the lion in The Wizard of Oz. But that lion was cowardly. Tim Jackson was anything but. Paul Brotherton served 16 years on the department. He was the father of six boys and was a hell of a cook. Family members often joke that he could make a casserole out of crumbs from a toaster. And that enthusiasm almost got him off the job. He cut his hand open with a chopping knife in the kitchen. And he was nearly forced into retirement after he slipped on a patch of black ice in the back lot and messed up his thumb so badly it was torn out of its socket. The Brotherton boys, though, they're credited for aiding in his recovery through the art of video game therapy. Jeremiah Jerry Lucy was a nine-year veteran of the WFD. He was a member of the Worcester Fire Department Honor Guard and the Massachusetts Hazardous Waste Material Team. He also worked part-time at the Massachusetts Firefighting Academy. He, too, had a love of firefighting as a kid. And for Jerry Lucy, it was a long time coming. Jerry, the father of two boys, waited it out at a Coca-Cola bottling plant hoping for a vacancy in the department. When his name finally came up, he wanted to get into the most intense part of it and locked in a spot in the rescue squad. Many who knew him spoke about how Jerry Lucy would put himself on the line at any time on or off duty. He accepted the risk as part of the job. It is what he signed up for. It is the character of a firefighter. Joseph McGurk was of the McGurks who served more than 200 years as firefighters. His father had served 30 years as a firefighter, and three years before, at the age of 35, when he was running out of time, Joseph entered the department. Joe McGurk was the dad of two kids. Lieutenant Thomas Spencer was the father of three children, and he was active in scouts and soccer and Little League. As a 21-year veteran of the Worcester Fire Department and a lifelong resident of the city of Worcester, he was mourned by so many. His wife Kathy said it best, though. She was mourning more than just her husband. She was mourning the loss of a family, a family of firefighters. Outside the warehouse, even a few days after the fire, lines of firefighters stood in full gear, on watch, exhausted, long after they'd been told they could go home. It would be confirmed that all men died in the fire, and it would be listed among the nation's worst loss of life involving firefighters. A few other major deadly incidents come to mind when I think of the Worcester Warehouse fire. March 10, 1941, the Strand Theater Fire. In the early morning hours of March 10th, 12 Brockton firefighters were killed and an additional 20 injured fighting a fire in the Strand Theater in downtown Brockton, Massachusetts. Firefighters located in the balcony area struggled to open the heavy plaster walls when the roof collapsed. 12 died at the scene. A 13th firefighter who was rescued from the wreckage died within days. The fire in the Worcester Warehouse brought back memories of the infamous Hotel Vendome fire in 1972, which killed nine firefighters in Boston's Back Bay. In the late afternoon hours of Saturday, June 17, 1972, the fire raged through the upper floors of the seven-story hotel, including the penthouse. As it was being extinguished, 
the southeast corner of the building collapsed. Many firefighters operating in the upper floors were trapped in the pile of rubble that ensued. After extensive rescue operations that went through the night, nine firefighters had lost their lives. The Vendome Fire and Collapse remains the largest line-of-duty death incident in the history of the Boston Fire Department. That's the Vendome. I worked in that building, in the basement level where the Café Vendome was. The restaurant was called Spasso, and I waited tables there through college. I heard many stories, but never had my own experience. There were incidents of a presence there. Many city restaurants like that one were a series of hallways that led to bathrooms and storage areas, or walk-in refrigerators in those hallways. The search for the Worcester Six was tedious. Firefighters working in shifts poured through whatever they could in hopes of locating the men. A wrecking ball knocked the thick exterior of the warehouse. Pieces fell to the sidewalk. A backhoe moved in to catch the debris. Dogs were brought in to sniff through what was left. Heaps of fire remnants that somewhere underneath contained the bodies of these men. Weary firefighters picked through. Most had gone days without any sleep. They sifted every square inch, looking for any clue that would lead them to the men. An air mask, a tank, any recognizable articles. None of this was without risk. Pockets of flames continued to break out. They knew the remains of the building were unstable, but they were not going to stop searching. No matter what or how long it took. Firefighters from three dozen communities showed up to help. Alongside the Federal Emergency Management Agency, that's FEMA, teams of six stepped into the site, moving beams, pipes, charred remains. As the teams dug, the investigation was on as to who or what caused this fire. The area, known as Grafton Hill, had been known to have homeless people camping inside and lighting fires in empty buildings to stay warm. And many who worked in the area said the city knew there were homeless people sleeping inside there. Bobcats were moving heavy items. Firefighters shoveled the smaller debris into orange buckets to be taken down to the sifting area. On the eighth day, Paul Brotherton was the last to be found. As they were removing Paul that night, there was a flare-up of flames that lasted about 30 seconds. The final flash. The fire was finally out. Eight days later and as Paul Brotherton was recovered from the rubble. Thank you for listening. There is a whole other part to this story that I want to tell you about in part two, and no, I won't make you wait two weeks to hear it. So thanks for walking through part one of the Worcester Six with me. Like all of these stories, it's highly emotional. And 21 years later, it's very important to tell this story. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for part two. Crime of the truest kind, the Worcester Six, Worcester, Massachusetts. Follow the show online, crimeofthetruestkind.com. All the socials, at crimeofthetruestkind. Facebook, Instagram, at truestkind. On Twitter, TikTok, at truestkind to buy me a coffee. You have been incredibly generous, and I thank you. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Episodes are up there, and new features are coming. Merch, always available. Be so cool and declare your love for true crime. 
crimeofthetruestkind.com slash shop. Listen, subscribe, rate, review, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, Audible, Podchaser. Five stars are my favorite. Don't be surprised if you hear bulldog snoring because yes, Otis is lying down behind me. I have a lot of dogs, but he's the one that likes to be down here with me most. Thanks for listening. Crime of the truest kind. My name is Angel Wood. Music in this episode comes from Joe Only One Kowalski and Andrew King, both of Boston, Massachusetts. Until next time, lock your goddamn doors. Thank you.